It's very common in our society that unlike nearly in any other realm of life, a person can claim to be a Christian while he most definitely is not. In other words, you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm a fireman, nor would you do that regarding any profession. Why is that, though? Why is it so simple and easy for us to understand that a person does not simply become an attorney or a doctor or a plumber overnight? There's a process by which he not only becomes qualified, trained, and ratified as such a person, but there is a process of affirmation. In any instance, it's not simply a matter of having a degree. It's about being affirmed and uh, really confirmed as being qualified, ready. That's why we go to school. That's why we endure training. That's why we endure internships. Uh, that's very common in any and every culture. But there's a process not only by which a person becomes ready for a role, there's a process by which people determine that it's actually true. Why is it then, when it comes to the matter of Christianity, that people feel so free to make a declaration about something that is absolutely not only potentially untrue, it is certainly untrue? Why do so many people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, get a pass, when their lives prove that they're not? I would say fundamentally that it's a clear fundamental attack on the gospel by Satan himself. Satan weaves a lot of webs in people's lives. I think really the issue that comes first to my mind is the matter of weakness in the pulpit. Men who think that it's loving not to say things that are difficult for people to hear, which of course you can illustrate in so many ways is not true. You know, when your children were small, you did everything you could to keep them out of the traffic so they didn't get hit by a car. When we tell people the truth and we do it in love, we're simply saying that which they need to hear. So because of this satanic attack and because of faithlessness by so many pastors who really aren't, they're not shepherds, they're rock stars in many cases because they've become so popular and therefore there's no accountability. You know, they've got this euphoric momentum that enables them to keep doing what they're doing. I, I cite Mark Driscoll as kind of the best known example of that in our day. You know, people were just so drawn to him. Unbelievers were drawn to him because he was so crass and funny and smart, an amazing memory. He says he can remember things that he read 20 years ago as if he just read it that morning. And so it, it lends greater credibility, but it certainly doesn't make someone qualified for the pastorate. It doesn't even make them qualified to explain truth in any conversation. But in our culture, we're so enamored with charisma and with humor and intellect that even as Christians, we who are called primarily to be discerning can so easily be bamboozled. And so you have the book of Galatians where Paul confirms their salvation, but he asks the question, who bamboozled you with a false 
gospel. And why, why does it even matter if they're saved? Well, it matters because if they have slipped into wrong thinking about how people are saved, they'll be completely ineffective in their evangelism. Not to mention their ability to glorify Christ for, for, for what he and he alone accomplished on the cross. Why does it matter to me? Why does it matter to you? Why do we care that we are clear about what it means to be a believer? God has called us to trust in his sovereign decree, in his sovereign work, that he would bless us with our willingness to communicate truth with passion and with grace and with love, without pulling punches for those who are willing to engage in the fight. Right? You know what I mean by that? People who are willing to have the discussion actually have somewhat of a gentle argument about what it really means to know the Lord. You know that person. Persons, you probably know several people like that who are willing to have a discussion and it gets to be a little bit of a disagreement when you start speaking fundamentally from the scripture and they start speaking fundamentally from their experience. If that person is willing to engage in that sometimes battle-like conversation, what do you do with them? Do you pull punches? No. You deliver them with love. You tell them the truth and you, you ask at points at times where you're convinced that the conversation is getting difficult painful, you say, hey, can we come back to this? Because I'm thinking that right now you and I both need a break, right? Evangelism is not a one-time experience where you go to market night and you scream at people through a bullhorn, tell them they're going to hell. That is not evangelism. And the justification that so many people have for doing things like that is they like to call everything else friendship evangelism. And then they'll say this. They'll say, it's not friendship and it's not evangelism. And they lump everything that's not shoving tracks up people's noses into that category. And they do things like they'll go to a restaurant and the tip they leave is the track. And the waiter, who might be a woman who's struggling to survive with three kids at home, looks at that and says, yeah, you know, really, I'm not interested in your Christianity because... You know what? It's not Christianity. True evangelism is nurtured. Look at the Bible. Look at the Bible if you want to understand evangelism. The Bible displays relationships, a willingness to serve people, to love them. You, know, you should be energized by our time together this morning. You, you might say, well, sometimes I leave, leave here feeling a little beat up. If I'm being faithful to the Scripture, I'm feeling a little beat up myself. Trust me, I'm in this with you. But we ought to feel not just beat up. We ought to feel empowered. We ought to feel strengthened saying, this truth is certainly true. I can trust it. I must trust it. I mean, who that desires to be faithful to Christ goes to church to feel like he just ate cotton candy and now he can go take a nap because he feels better about himself. Who does that? You don't do that. You come here to be challenged. You come here to be strengthened. You come here to be shown to be wrong in your thinking. I mean, why would you sit under sound teaching if you already knew everything you need, needed to know? And you don't need me if you know everything there is to know about the Bible. We've got a lot to learn together. Well, I've taken longer in my intro than I intended, so I'm going to skip the review. Just know that I'm exercising a lot of self-restraint right now by not going back and doing the review that I often do. I do want to just review one thing. Let me first give you the point from last week. <laughs> I'm so glad you love me. 
If you do not keep Jesus' word, you do not know God. Remember that from last week. And I think you need to put some emphasis on that in your own mind as we look to point two. We talked about Nicodemus being that person who had no interest in truth, and yet he went to Jesus at night. Now, there is a reason that he went at night. Things that happen in the dark are not uncovered as easily as things that happen during the day. So Nicodemus, at that point in his life, was avoiding any exposure to the fact that he was giving serious consideration to what the other Pharisees would have called a false messiah. Now go with me to chapter 7, and I promise this is all we're going to do in the way of review. Chapter 7, uh, verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And of course, the ridicule came in like an avalanche, and they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Are you dirty as well? Are you a dog? Are you a Gentile? Are you from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And they were wrong historically. Jonah was from Galilee. So they not only showed their disdain for the God-man, They showed their ignorance. It's just crazy that they didn't know that about Jonah. Maybe they did know it. They somehow wanted him to believe that there's no way that he could believe that he was, in fact, a prophet sent from God. Well, as I said uh, last week, our emphasis was from verses 48 through 54, that if you don't keep Jesus' word, You know, fundamentally speaking, if you don't obey Jesus, you don't know God. You're not of God. You might know God the way those about whom Paul speaks in Romans 1 knew God. Remember that? Paul says about them, they knew God, but they were not thankful. They knew him, but they weren't thankful for him. And then one thing leads to another, and you see this domino result that they eventually abandon him, and God abandons them. He turns them over to their debased mind in their ingratitude. So they knew him, in essence. But yeah, I heard some of you saying it, and you're right. They were not of God, and that's what we're seeing here in those at whom Jesus directs his rebuke. And so point number two this morning, Jesus is the God you don't know. I haven't mentioned it in a while, but it is perplexing on the surface that a professor at the Israel Extension of the Master's University in Jerusalem for 23 years verbally acquiesced to this doctrine and then Because of the influence of some false converts that he was surrounded by in Jerusalem, he began to question this truth. Now, I say it's perplexing on the surface. Most of you, or at least many of you, probably grew up in an environment where you were taught that Jesus is God, and yet you couldn't have punched your way out of a wet theological bag in an effort to explain why you believe that, except that your pastor said it over and over and over. And so this is the difference between making assertions and delivering an argument. Don't be the person that makes assertions. By the way, if you listen to a pastor, a preacher, who simply makes 
assertions, but he doesn't coach you up to why he is convinced of those assertions. What's he doing? He's simply superimposing his beliefs upon you without shepherding you unto those doctrines. This is a big part of why we have Iron Man and WOW, especially with what we're doing right now. You'll hear me say lots of things in a fairly rapid way on Sunday mornings. And so what, what is Wednesday night and Saturday morning for you? It's a big part of your spiritual education, taking you more slowly through some of the fundamental doctrines of the faith. So I said to you last week, coming here on Sunday mornings is not enough. In fact, I would say what's going to happen is you're going to get front-loaded in an unbalanced way, and you're going to get frustrated. You've got to be involved in practical discipleship that leads you one-on-one or one-on-four through a process of understanding the theologies of the Bible. Otherwise, we're going to be so far behind the curve because everything I'm doing on Sunday morning is the basic fundamentals of the faith. That's not what Sunday morning is for. It's for the equipping starting with the most mature people in the body. That's what I'm shooting for. And the hope is that there is a necessary cascading effect upon everyone else in the body, including those 12 and 13-year-olds who are brand new in our worship service. You say, well, how much are they really going to retain from Sunday morning? Some of it. But where they're really going to gain is from you having discipleship relationships with them. You know, I meet with my oldest son on Wednesday mornings and my second oldest son on Friday mornings. And we're right now going through MacArthur's book called um, The Jesus Answer Book. And so we're, it's a Christology. We're just, you know, looking at what the Bible says about Christ, asking how, how do these truths display God's glory and what do I do with them? Especially for those of you who have young kids, it's, it's critical. You're pouring yourself into them. You say, oh, my kids are older now. Pour yourself into them if they'll let you. And if they won't, plead with somebody else to do it. And you do that with somebody else's kids who won't talk to their parents anymore. You know, Get busy. Invest. Invest. Especially in our church. We're saying here that Jesus is the God you don't know. Bill Schlegel professor that I've mentioned to you a number of times, concluded that Jesus is not God. You say, well, how did he believe that for 23 years? I say he was influenced by the platitudes of those who said that from a young age, and yet, and he's confessed this to me, every time he heard this truth explained, he didn't buy it. He didn't buy it. So for 23 plus years, he lived a lie affirming a doctrinal statement when he didn't really believe what it said. Now, why did he not believe what it said? In the words of Jesus, because you are not of God. You do not believe the things of God because you are not of God. Friends, you and I have to have the platform, the credibility, the loving interaction with people to be able to say this to them if they reject the deity of Jesus Christ. But more pervasively throughout the book of John, what we see this morning is that those who do not obey Jesus Christ don't know Jesus Christ. They think they do many times because they don't believe he's God. They say, I'm committed to the Messiah, but whether or not he's God, that's not important. See, that's heresy. That's a fundamental doctrine. It's critical. It's a non-negotiable. It's not something that, that we can give a pass to. 
And so as we look at this text this morning again, the whole idea here is that Jesus is the God that those who don't obey Jesus don't know. He is that God. Now if you're wondering how in the world can he be God while the Spirit is God, while the Father is God, you need to come to Iron Man and wow. Rick Henshaw is going to be teaching on pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit of God. How is he God? I've already looked over Rick's notes and it's fabulous. Just so, in case you're wondering what I was thinking, Rick. I hadn't told him that yet. But it's just solid, genuinely biblical, pneumatological truth. Holy Spirit truth about the Holy Spirit. If anyone is abused in spiritual cultures in Christendom, it's the Holy Spirit. All kinds of things get attributed to him that he has nothing to do with. And so... People who attribute things to the Holy Spirit, this is a small tangent, in case you're wondering. People who attribute things to the Holy Spirit, therefore, want nothing to do with what the Holy Spirit actually does. God gave them a dream. The Spirit came to them in a movie or in a conversation. So they rest in that. So anything else they hear from the Word of God, it's negotiable. Because I got that you know special event that I remember back in... Uh, 2003 or whatever. That's my rock. That's my anchor. That's my foundation. God talked to me. And so anything else that God has actually said is optional at best, if not dismissible. Verse 55 in our text. But you have not known him. Could he be more direct? You don't know him, you have not known him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. You demand to know who I make myself out to be when I've already told you repeatedly. But my Father will glorify me in the proper time. Jesus is saying. You say he is your God, but he's not. You don't know him. I know him. In the same way that it would be ludicrous for me, his eternal son, to say I do not know him, it is equally ludicrous for you to say that you do know him. So he sarcastically says, your father, Abraham. He's already indicated, I, I know he's biologically your ascendant, your ancestor but he's not your father in the way that you claim that he is your father. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You see, God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of his chosen people and that those people, his children, would outnumber the stars in the heavens and the grains of the sand that surround the ocean. That was God's promise. We call that the Abrahamic covenant The beginning of the manifestation of that promise, the fulfillment of that promise, was in Isaac, his son. This would have been massively persuasive to Abraham that God would actually fulfill what he said he would. And Abraham willingly laid out as a sacrifice before God his son, who was the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. He was willing to trust God and actually sacrifice his son. So Isaac then was a type 
We speak in literary terms. We, we call Isaac a type of Christ. We don't say that he is a Christ. What we mean by that is typology. There are types of Christ in the Old Testament, and this is one of them, meaning that it looked forward. It was a picture of who Christ would be and what he would do. But even then, while Abraham trusted God to fulfill his promise, and while Abraham trusted God that in the sacrifice of his son, God would still fulfill that promise, God provided a substitute. Isn't that beautiful? So Isaac lived even while Abraham was willing to sacrifice him. God provided the lamb that prefigured the lamb who would, in fact, die and take away the sins of the world. But then he ultimately provided the lamb of God, which that ram in the thicket was a type toward or a type of. John eight thirty nine says, They answered him, Abraham is our father, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. We just looked at what Abraham did. They're not doing what Abraham did. He says, you are doing the works your father did, and Jesus has established that their father is, in fact, the devil. Verse 37 of John 8, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. My word has no home in you. It's like water off a duck's back. It bounces off of you. You reject my word. As Paul speaks of the Pharisees in Romans 10, they have, they have zeal without knowledge. They have this passion that's ignorant devoid of real understanding, of real truth. But what does he mean here by Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day? He saw it and was glad. You remember this promise had been given to Abraham. Look back with me at Genesis 12, verse 1. And now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What's the primary act, if you will, the primary thing that Abraham did to which Jesus is referring when he says, if Abraham were your father, you'd do the works of Abraham? It's belief. What did Jesus call the Jews to do? He called them to believe. And again, you've got to understand that Calvinistically, or when it comes to Reformed theology, a lot of times we are falsely accused of saying that because God is sovereign and controls all things, that man plays no role in his salvation. Let me tell you this, it's critical to understand that he does play a role in his non-salvation. It's his will that needs to be made 
regenerate. His will, Romans 8, is hatred for God. If you think of it, be praying for Heather and Corey and Jacob and Scotty and Lily this morning because they're, they're dropping Jacob off for his swearing in into the Marines um, in 20 minutes. One of the things that you, those of you who know Jacob, uh, is that Jacob is very honest about the spiritual condition which those of us who are in Christ knew to be true of him before he knew it. And he was snatched out of a false church environment where he was taught week after week after week that what it means to be a Christian is that you ask Jesus into your heart. And he would have said, you know, that was my hope. But he hated God. He hated people. He was rude to most of you, rude to me. And we loved him anyway. And I always love the story Kimberly tells about how she would say to him, one of these days you're going to hug me first. And that happens regularly now. It's not just about hugging. It's not about being nice to each other. It's about the fact that God, when he regenerates someone, produces a love for people in him that he, he can't hide in the same way that he couldn't really hide his hatred for people. You see, that regenerative work is displayed in change always. It's not perfect change, right? A baby Christian has to grow into maturity and yeah, he definitely attempts to resurrect the dead man that he used to be from time to time. We call that the flesh. The Bible calls that the flesh. But he's got a proclivity for integrity and honesty and sweetness and love and service. He can't sit and watch the church serve while he plays video games or whatever he does. He can't do that. You know, A believer can't do that. So that change that so many of you have observed in Jacob and, and many others in our church is what took place in Abraham. It was belief. It was belief. And God credited righteousness to him in his belief. Not only in Christ's righteousness, it wasn't just the attribute of God, it was the faithfulness of Christ it was the obedience of Christ. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Resting not only in the attribute of God, of righteousness, but the fulfillment of the commands in Jesus' life to live out that righteousness. It is his obedience that we rest in. Abraham didn't have what you and I have. Abraham's life was rooted in a Hebrews 11.1 reality. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There are things that you and I have not yet seen, but in a sense we've seen the cross, we've seen the resurrection. We look back to that. Abraham looked forward to that. And God reckoned that looking forward to and believing as righteousness. That's imputed Righteousness. It's not earned. It's not infused. It's not maintained by the believer. It's granted, and the believer responds to it with gratitude and worship and service and teaching each other, counseling one another, admonishing one another, singing with and to one another, to God. And this was Abraham. So, Jesus, think of it. Now, you say, how does this help me in my life to? honor Christ and to help others. 
this is the picture. This is what happens. This is normal. It's normal faith that when God saves a person, he moves upon that person to be inclined, to be conformed to the person of Christ. And when he refuses to do that, those who are actually in Christ, if they love him, will tell him. They'll tell him. Verse 57 in our text says, So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? This is mockery, as you know. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. See, this is the theology of the deity of Jesus. The reality that he is God in eternity past. I don't have time, but if we were to rifle through the Bible, we would see over and over and over that Jesus existed. When we get to John 17, it's going to be just as clear as it is here. Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory. Who existed before the world existed? Just the Trinity. That was it. There was no man, Jesus. How did he exist? It's really interesting. And if, you, if, if you're interested in this, I can tell you where to go on my Facebook page as I've interacted with these folks that are fighting against the truth of Jesus' deity. Their claim is that nowhere in the Bible is it explicitly stated or even inferred that Jesus is God. And yet their constant battle is to undo these plain texts that state Jesus' deity. They get into some really ludicrous arguments in an effort to dismiss the deity of Jesus. But friends, this is why we've asked you to memorize this passage, because it's, this is as simple as it gets. Before Abraham what? Was. The word means existed. What does the word Yahweh mean? You know, your Jehovah's Witness neighbors that stop by your house every now and then on a Saturday will attempt to persuade you to believe that he absolutely must be called Jehovah. I've got no argument with that. But it's not a bad idea for you to respond to that, to let them know that you know at least a little something about their cult, their heresy. It's not a problem. It's not wrong for you to say, well, just so you know, I don't mind calling him Jehovah, but you need to understand, you probably don't know this. People like it when you say those things to them, don't they? You probably don't know this. (laughs) They might not like it, but it'll scare them a little bit. And it's true for you to say to them, the word Jehovah is an English transliteration of a German transliteration of the Hebrew word that means to exist. There's no tense in Hebrew. It's not past, present, or future, and so it applies in all directions chronologically. Where he says, I am, but this is Greek, but this is the Bible that believers used at the time. Jesus himself used the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament text. And so, yeah, it's not Yahweh. And by the way, we don't know how it's pronounced because there's no consonants in Hebrew. We pronounce it as Yahweh. You can say Jehovah if you want. Nothing wrong with that. But when someone says Jesus didn't say that in Hebrew, well, that's true because nobody said it in Hebrew during that time. Jesus himself used the Greek translation Ego, a me. Some of you are quoting it with me. You've heard me say it so many times. 
ego eimi. What does it mean? It means I am. What does it mean fundamentally? It means to exist. Now in the Greek there are tenses, but that's not a problem. Jesus is simply saying, today I am. And he's using the exact terminology that God used in Exodus 3 to respond to Moses. When Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? Let's go back there for a moment. Exodus 3, beginning with verse 1. Exodus 3, 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Further down in verse 13, after this conversation has developed, and Moses is really saying, what am I going to do here? Pharaoh's not real receptive much to anybody who attempts to refute his way of doing things, and I'm not actually in good favor with Pharaoh these days. Verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And if you want a perfectly literal translation, it goes like this. Tell them to exist, to exist. It's the fundamental infinitive form of the word. Tell them the existing one. Well, what does that mean theologically? It means the one who is in his essence, in his basic nature, the one who has always existed. This is what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. And you can imagine for them, this would be repulsive. This would be shocking to them. How in the world could someone make such a claim? And so they deal with the chronological reality of Abraham's earthly age versus Jesus' earthly age. Now, in Leviticus 24, 16, they would have been informed with this basic doctrine. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. So there's a sense in which they, in their minds, are doing that which is right. We need to put to death the one who blasphemes the name. Many of you are aware of the fact that even today in Jewish synagogues, in an effort to adhere to the letter of the law and completely abandon or sidestep the spirit of the law, religious leaders avoid using the name God. Anybody ever seen with all the social media stuff you've looked at? You ever seen it written this way? G-D? Anybody ever seen that? So what they're doing is attempting to adhere to the letter of the law to not take the Lord's name in vain. And this was a Jewish practice at the time. In order to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, according to the Ten Commandments, they would simply not say it. If I don't say it, I can't take it in vain 
The problem was that they were taking it in vain because they took it at all, which takes you back to my introduction to the sermon where I said the problem is that so many people take the name of the Lord and they do not know the Lord. They are not of God. And so in an effort to salve their conscience and to not think about the future, to not think about the reality that he himself is storing up wrath for himself while he lives the way he lives, he does everything he can to put that out of his mind, including listening to bad theology, watered-down, hyper-grace theology. It says that whether or not you're a Christian, that's between you and God. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. It's an absolute satanic lie. There's no instance in Scripture where you are called to assess yourself by yourself. This is why so often when folks who have not been accustomed to legitimate biblical shepherding, legitimate ecclesiology, they come into a church that's faithful and they kind of have a knee-jerk response to true shepherding. And if a person really wants to be faithful to Christ, they examine that, they look at the Bible, and they eventually say, man, this is what I've needed all along. No wonder I haven't had any spiritual traction. No wonder I can't get along with anybody. No wonder nobody's getting saved as a result of my life. You know? But it's a process. It's a process. Jesus makes this claim about himself. It is... It's repulsive to the false converts. I mean, this is, friends, this is always the case, beloved. When you begin to speak truth that challenges the false theology of the false convert, the immediate response is a welling up of anger, and the battle begins. The duty you and I have is to cling graciously and lovingly and humbly, compassionately and faithfully to the truth. See, how could they justify a public murder? A stoning wasn't you know, what you've so often seen in the movies you know, where 20 people are throwing these rocks at people. A stoning was a crushing of a person's head with a rock large enough to do it with one drop. And that's what they were about to do to him. They wanted him dead, and they were justifying it with a misapplied Old Testament truth The answer that the Lord gave to Moses, along with the answer that Jesus gave to the false converts, was not simply a matter of theological correction. And as you know, the result is that they desired to kill him even in the moment. This is not the first time, and it certainly wouldn't be the last they would attempt to kill him. But how does this affect us? What do we do with this? I told you last week from Colossians 3 that our attitude ought to be one of compassion. You know, the person who looks condescendingly down upon those who aren't religious enough for their favor are proving the reality that they themselves have not experienced the compassion of Christ. Look with me at Acts 2 for a moment. Acts 2. This is, in terms of a sound soteriology, historically critical. And it's, it forces the thought process amongst those who want to believe the truth of Scripture and see what seems to be opposing realities. And the person who oversimplifies all this and just does everything he can to pit the, the parts of the Bible that he likes against those that he doesn't like, I say, proves himself 
to be a person who cannot bear the word of God. And so he bears the parts that he likes and he uses it to dismiss the parts that he doesn't like. Now, those who do that do not like this text that we're about to read together. Acts 2, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? Of course you believe that. We believe that as much as we believe anything. The problem with those who would probably accuse us of not believing that are not committed to understanding what Lord means here. By now, there's been a substantial education amongst the people that Jesus is God. He's God who took on flesh. So, of course we believe that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But what we don't mean by that is how the Jews would have described the use of a name with regard to the letter of the law. In the charismatic world, they would say what this means is call upon the five-letter word, J-E-S-U-S, and you're saved. You don't have to mean anything by that. You just have to say, Jesus! And then they affirm you as a member of the family of God. And what the reality is, is you are a member of the family of Satan, still, not yet adopted. That prayer doesn't mean anything if it doesn't mean anything. Obviously, it's an axiomatic truth that something doesn't mean something, it doesn't mean something. But too often, people are not willing to stop and ask, what does it actually mean? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. We say there, they say, there you go. He's a man. Jesus is a man. And we say, yep, we agree with that. <laughs> We're totally on board. He is, in fact, very man of very man. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What? What? Foreknowledge? Definite plan? Election? God's predetermined decree? No way! Exactly what's going on here. I think a good practical way to say it is there is no plan B. This isn't plan B. This is plan A. This is God's predetermined decree. Keep reading. The verse goes on to say, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, or in this case, culpability, right there in the text. And you see it over and over and over. The person who wants to draw out the human responsibility and dismiss God's sovereignty will do all kinds of gymnastics to do it. But he mustn't do it, and you mustn't allow it. You mustn't approve it. You mustn't do it yourself. And you must never allow a person to do it in the face of true soteriology. 
Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is the rejoicing of David in knowing that ultimately God would not only not abandon him, he would not abandon the forecoming Savior, even though it was his plan for him to be raised up in death, but ultimately raised up in resurrection. You know this from Isaiah 53. He says, it pleased God to crush him. That means to kill him, to bring him to death. There was a well-known Christian artist back in the 90s who sang the phrase, Christ died for God. And so much man-centered theology forgets that fundamental doctrinal truth. Christ not only died for God, Christ died in obedience to God. God, who took on flesh, died for God, who did not take on flesh. You want a quick summary of the doctrine of the deity of Christ? Read Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2. God says to God, God the Father speaks to God the Son, and he calls him God. And again, liberal theologians will do everything they can to dismiss the reality that the Father is referring to the Son and is referring to him as God. So again, what do we do with this? I'll take the opportunity to explain this truth with grace, with kindness. You say, you know person I'm thinking of is not interested. You can't do anything about that except continue to rest in these truths and hope for the opportunity one day. But all you have is truth. You cannot sidestep the truth. So again, a little bit more about what to do. I think Paul's words in Colossians 3 are appropriate again. Verse 12 Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. See, the idea is that you go in with the right attitude. You're never going to get the words precisely right. I certainly don't. But the heart attitude is the one that comes from the Lord. Have this mind, Paul says in Philippians 2. Have this attitude. What's the attitude? It's the one of Christ. What's the attitude of Christ? He explains very clearly that you consider others as more important than yourself. That you think of others as more highly than self. You actually believe that they're more important than you. That's the attitude that Christ took on. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. This primarily applies within the body of Christ. Think of it. If you and I can't do this with each other, how in the world are you going to be able to do it with the lost? We're to practice on each other. Sometimes we give each other a lot to practice on, don't we? 
We can be a real challenge, every one of us at times. We're called to bear with one another. If one has a complaint against another, what do you do with that? You got a complaint against me. What do you do with that? You spend 30 minutes at lunch talking about what you didn't like, or you bring it to me? See, that's the way this works. I can use me because I'm you know, the one saying all the stuff you don't like. But it's a great example, isn't it? How often have you walked out of a sermon upset with the messenger? What you should have been doing is going to him and saying, hey, I need a little help with this. Or going to your family group shepherd, I need a little help with this. It's just black and white. It's the simplest thing there is. Let's get a little deeper on this. We ask the question, what do we do with this doctrine of the deity of Jesus that the Pharisees were proven to be unbelievers as a result of rejecting that truth? What do you and I do with that today? Go with me to 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll wrap it up here. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Paul goes straight to some of the most difficult realities of things that you and I are called to endure in Society. Somebody said to me just this last week, it really offends me when people use obscene language. And I had to say, you know what, i got to be honest, that really doesn't offend me. It concerns me when it's a person who professes to know Christ, but when an unbeliever uses the foulest of language, I just got to tell you, it doesn't affect me at all. You know, what affects me is the condition of their soul that's reflected in that speech. On the other hand, when a person who professes to know Christ uses even the remotest obscene or foul language, I'm very concerned because he's diminishing our impact, including mine, we together as believers upon the world. I have great concern about that. I'm not offended by it, but I'm very concerned about it. How can you maintain that mindset, choosing not to be offended, choosing to overlook an offense? I think here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells us. He says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, friends, please, please, please take a moment and refuse to apply this to somebody else and plead with God to help you think through the degree to which you either have or have not ever applied this to yourself. It's too easy to be the Pharisee and apply this to somebody else. You ready? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. I promise you, there are people in this room who are currently committing sexual immorality. Do I know that about anybody in particular? It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the reality is that there will be tares among the wheat. Now this you can be certain of. There's too much dismissing of what is truly sexual immorality by saying things like, well, I can look at the menu so long as I don't order. And don't laugh because it's not funny. But people will say things like that to be funny. And they're actually engaging in sexual immorality. Say, Todd, you sound like you're getting a little bit amped up. I am because those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, Are you saying that a believer can't commit sexual immorality? No, I'm not saying that at all. But what Paul is saying here, in the same way that John is saying it, the person who practices these things, the person who has no devastating remorse for these things, if you're sitting in here this morning and you've committed sexual immorality this week, but you hate it, and you're actually of enough integrity to deal with it and plead with someone 
to help you snip the cords of your sins so you don't drown eternally in the wrath of God which you've brought upon yourself, if you're actually willing to do that, then there is some hope that this is a past tense reality about you that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the folks I'm really speaking to in this room are those who in fact know Christ because what we're calling upon each other to do is to be compassionate about those who are yet in this imprisoned condition. You remember back in verse 31, verse 32, that section where Jesus says, the truth will set you free. But then he's very clear about the fact that truth, when it sets you free, frees you from the prison of sin. And the result is that you are destined for an eternity of bliss. But if you can continue to live in sexual immorality, you are a person upon whom the wrath of God sits in this moment. And if you are not that person, but you know someone who is, you have not only an obligation, but I know that within you is the love of Christ and the compassion of Christ that at least from time to time, is used by the Holy Spirit to move on your heart to initiate a conversation with that person so that they don't spend eternity in hell. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters. You can make an idol out of anything. We had a lengthy discussion about this in my family devotions this last week. You can make an idol out of nothing. You can fabricate your own idol. Idol. There's a lot of that in the Old Testament. Or you can make an idol out of a false Jesus. You can believe that Jesus was a good man, but not God. That's a false idol. It's an idol. It's a false God. A lot of ways people do that today. You can worship things. You can worship your car. So common. Worship money. Worship yourself. All idolatry is ultimately worship of self. Adulterers, you say, is there any hope for a person who would have sex with someone other than their spouse? Is there any hope for that person? Seemingly not. Now, the point at which a person is willing to do that, on the surface, it would appear that that person has stretched himself or herself beyond the grace of God, it would appear to be the case. And then he says, nor men who practice homosexuality. In my word, we're looking at Romans 1, right? And God's turned them over to a debased mind. They, they knew God, but they were not thankful. It was ingratitude that started them down the path upon which God shoved them off an eternal cliff of no return. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, dishonest businessmen. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no way around this. And friends, too often, you and I can engage in some sort of fleshly theological battle by taking this text and shoving it down somebody's throat so as to make them feel guilty. But praise God, Paul keeps talking, and he says, and such were some of you. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were sexually immoral. 
Some of you were idolaters at your core. You were far more committed to the Lakers than you were the Lord at one time, some of you. Some of you were adulterers. I know that for a fact. But praise God for the fact that Greek does use tense. And the tense here is past. Look at what he says about it. Such were some of you, but you were washed. He doesn't say you washed yourself. He doesn't say some of you cleaned yourselves up. He says some of you were washed. There was an initial washing. You were sanctified. You were justified. How were you justified? Because of your conduct? No, because of Christ's conduct. Justified. Imputed righteousness. There is a legal declaration. It's the power of the gospel that God establishes that a person possesses the righteousness of Christ. And now God holds Christ's account to that person and he holds that person's account to Christ. And Christ bears the wrath. He bore the wrath. He bore it in full. He bore it efficaciously. It applied certainly, not potentially, definitely, particularly to his life. The result is that one day he awakens to his pharisaical condition and he abandons it. And he rests completely in the God-man who is very God of very God, very man of very man. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were we. Such was John. Such was Nicodemus. Such was Paul. But my fear is that there are those among us who would say, yep, such was I, while they're still living in that condition. That's my fear. Paul and Jesus assure us that that will be the case even into the New Testament age. There are those who would say, yeah, I'm glad that's a thing of the past when they know they're lying. And they've done everything they can to whitewash their sin so as to be able to gain favor with the people around them, have lunch with them, talk with them, do things with them. And what they ought to be doing is having a private conversation with confession that leads to compassion. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Confession and forsaking of sin lead to compassion. But he who conceals his iniquities will not prosper. Beloved, don't leave here and say, man, that was good. Don't do that. Do not do that. Leave here and say, what is there about my life, about how I handle my time, my money, all my resources? What must I do to ensure that while I have time, while I have life, while I have breath, the Lord will most use me to move those in that category 
of being unable to bear, unable to hear the word of God, would be transferred into the category of the regenerate who actually keep the word of Jesus. Father, we have gathered this morning for your glory in hopes that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, and we trust that that is the case, but we plead with you to help us see where it's not. That your glory would be on display, that we would be used ultimately for the salvation of your sheep. Amen.